And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are grateful for your presence here. We're thankful for your word this morning and the opportunity to proclaim it and allow it to stand over our lives. Lord, we pray that your word would challenge our hearts, would convict us of sin, would draw us unto repentance, would help us to believe by faith in what you are doing in spite of us. God, we surrender our hearts to you now and ask that you would speak to us from your word, that your scripture would proclaim a message to our hearts that would stir us to give our entire lives to your kingdom. Lord, we don't give our lives to emotion. We don't give our lives to experience. We give every mundane, day-to-day thing, every challenge, every blessing we give to you, Lord. We are not here looking for the ecstatic. We are here looking for the presence of our God. And we stand under his authority and his authority alone. And so, God, we ask for your word to speak to our hearts, to challenge us and encourage us to bow faithfully our knees at the feet of Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray, and by him alone we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at the story of Othniel, and uh, you might remember Othniel Um, is a deliverer or a judge that was uh, risen up by the Lord to uh, come and save Israel. Israel had cried out to the Lord. Again, remember when we're saying cried out, they're not repenting. Okay, We see see no signs of what you would call repentance among the people of Israel. We see a crying out in pain for the Lord to come and save from their pain, but never actual repentance. Repentance, And so we saw that the Lord rose up Othniel, one that was not even of the tribes of Israel, one that was a, a Kenizzite, one that, that wasn't of the line of, uh, of Israel, to come and have more faith than any of the other tribes even had, that the God of the Israelites was able to save, and he did so. He had more faith than the rest of the nation. And so you're going to see this pattern throughout this time as we go through Judges that the deliverer the Lord raises up is the one you would not expect to be risen up to save the people from their sin. And today, so we're looking at another one of these pictures, another deliverer that the Lord raises up when the people cry out, and this deliverer is named Ehud. Um, He's a deliverer who's used in spite of an apparent weakness as an opportunity, who sees an apparent weakness, as an opportunity to defeat the Moabites and bring about another period of rest to the land. I couldn't help but be reminded of of an individual that that looked at her disability and saw the Lord's strength. And I've I've spoken to this person before. Maybe you can guess as I read her biography. Um, It says that this woman... Served as, serves as a CEO of a Christian organization she founded, which provides programs and services for thousands of special needs families around the world. President Reagan appointed her to the National Coalition of, on Disability, and then she was reappointed by President George H.W. Bush. During her tenure, the ADA was passed and signed into law. She served as an advisor to Condoleezza Rice on the Disability Advisory Committee to the U.S. State Department. She served as Senior Associate for Disability Concerns for the La Swan Commitment, or Committee to, for World Evangelism. The Colson Center on Christian Worldview awarded her its most prestigious William Wilberforce Award. She was inducted to the Indiana Wesleyan University Society of World Changers. 
She's been awarded several honorary degrees, including doctorates from Gordon College and Westminster Theological Seminary. She's an effective communicator, sharing an inspirational message through 40-plus books, artwork, radio, and media, and is the general editor of the Beyond Suffering Bible. She's married to her husband, Ken. He's been so since 1982. Can anybody name her? Johnny Erickson Tata. In 1967, she was in a diving accident that left her as a quadriplegic. And instead of seeing her weakness and capitulating to it, she placed her faith in her God and has continually, daily, seen the Lord use something that should have been tragedy in the end of her life and turn it around into something that has literally changed the world and challenged us in many ways. And so today we're looking at one such figure that looked at a, something that looked like a disability, and because of what the Lord did, in spite of that, was turned around for something glorious. We're looking at Ahud, the deliverer. Verse 12, it says again, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, we see in this first verse an ABA pattern. You might have, we've talked about this um, chiasm effort throughout the scriptures, that the, the Lord uses this chiastic structure throughout the Bible, uh, ABC, BA, ABA, these kind of poetic structures, okay? Uh, the point is to emphasize things in a particular way. And here what's being emphasized is that who raised up Moab? The Lord did. Did he raise up Moab because Moab was strong? No. He raised up Moab because the people of Israel were sinning. On both ends of this, the A pattern, right? On both sides of it, the people of Israel sinned. The Lord strengthened Eglon because the people of Israel sinned. The point here is the people of Israel were walking in sin. And so, just as he promised them, if you walk away from me, then the curses that I give to the people of the land will come upon you. And that's exactly what has happened. He's risen up Moab, not because of Moab's strength or fortitude, but rather because of the sin of the people of Israel, he raised up this Moab to come against Israel. This is the reason why Moab was raised up. In verses 13 to 14, he goes on to say, He gathered to himself the Ammonites, Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab for 18 years. Uh, just a little bit of background on Moabites and Ammonites. Anybody know where they come from? The Moabites and the Ammonites? Pop quiz for you. I didn't know this till just this week, so or I didn't remember this. So the Moabites are descendants of Lot, as well as the Ammonites. Uh, so you can go back to the story of Genesis 19, 36 to 38, and his daughters and Lot, and yeah, the whole thing. Okay, so these are the descendants of Lot and his daughters. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites are the ones that come up against Israel and are fighting them and take possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms we understand to be Jericho. So the very place where, at the beginning of the conquest, the Lord so emphatically showed his power and strength. Jericho has fallen to Moab. And the people of Israel served Eglon for 18 years. After 18 years, verse 15 records, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ahud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to king, uh, the king of Moab. Um, some interesting things about Ahud just from his description here. First, the Lord raised up a deliverer. Again, not a, not a judge, but someone in the type of Moses. Okay? A Moses figure has been risen up. And so I've got a question for you. Everybody knows, everybody knows their left and right? You're going to need to know your left hand and your right hand today. Everybody got left and right hand? Left hand? Where's your left hand, everybody? Raise your left hand. Okay, good. Yep, okay, good. Yep, right, your right hand, we're good. Okay, cool. Okay, awesome, good. Uh, so Ahud is the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Benjaminite. Benjamin happens to be, ironically, and lovely for this story, the son of the right hand. Isn't that great? 
He's the son of the right hand. Um, but Ehud is a left-handed man. And um, more than being left-handed, actually, the word here is that his right hand is restricted. Like, it's been physically restricted. So what the Moabites would do to their people that they're defeating, when they defeat them, is to disable their right hand. Because the right hand is typically the arm of strength. And so, he's not, the word isn't, he is left-handed. The word is, he is disabled in his right hand. He has been constricted, like physically constricted. So when we get on later in the story, just keep that in your, you know, in your pocket, that someone has restricted his right hand for battle. Right? They took away his battling arm on purpose, intentional. So this is who Israel sends as an escort to the tribute that is brought to Eglon. All right, so we get into, this is Eglon. The Lord has raised up Ehud as a deliverer against Eglon. So keep your E name straight and your left and right straight, and we'll get through this, okay? Um, So we move on to this operation. Operation tribute is what I'm calling it. Um, Verses 16 to, to 26. So verse 16 says, um, And Ahud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Okay? So what's happening here? In a premeditated fashion, he is forming a new sword that has two edges, and he's putting it on his right thigh. Okay? He's got a concealed weapon, right? <laughs> So he's disabled in his right arm, and he's concealing a weapon that he can use with his left hand. He is intent on doing what is about to happen. Okay, he has a plan. He, this isn't just, he didn't like randomly show up with tribute and think, oh, I think I'll kill him. He was thinking about what was happening and looking for an opportunity. And he comes with a double-edged sword. I actually, uh, <laughs> it just reminded me of double-edged sword. So I've got a few verses here about double-edged sword that I don't, necess- I don't necessarily have connected to my thought. But I do want to say them because it is interesting. Double-edged sword, right? Uh, Psalm 149.6, Let the praise of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Proverbs 5.4, But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 is the most prominent one to me. Um, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, we're not just like, it's not just about the killing, it's about the killing what's inside, right? Killing to the heart, getting to the root of the issue is the two-edged sword. It's not about one thing, it's about the whole thing. Uh, Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like a sun shining in full strength, Revelation um, and the same in Revelation 2.12, And the angel of the church of Pergamum wrote, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay, so I didn't do a good job of like connecting those into my thoughts. But just two-edged sword has precedent, and not that much precedent. There's only a few places where it's shown. That's five verses. Okay, so when something is exceptional, you should take note of it and think about how that might correlate to what's going on. So when Hebrews, when they're writing Hebrews, we're thinking back of the stories of old, Right? Okay, so Ehud, thinking about what is happening, says, I'm going to make a two-edged sword. I'm, I'm concealing it so that no one can see it. I'm intent about what I'm doing. Verse 17, he says, And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Um, Ehud presented the tribute to, to Eglon. The tribute here, I'm just going to give you some definitions from these words. The tribute here uh, is likely in the form of food. This isn't, right, you see what's happening here already, okay, good. Uh, so it's in the form of food, it could be wheat, it could be meat, but it is food that is brought to Eglon, and just perfectly enough, this is, J- Jason, this passage is made for you, bro, this is literally Jason's passage. Eglon means, the word Eglon means, any guesses, just guess. Egg-shaped man, okay, food, skinny, all right, like tiny, like tiny, yeah, okay, juicy food, okay, yep, juicy fruit, yeah, okay, wait, uh, it means cow, 
It means cow. It is the diminutive form of the word cow. Okay? It can also be used to describe round. All right? Um, so just, you know, he's a fat man. His name is round. Okay? Um, he's known, and the thing here is that he is known for his size. Okay? This is equal to, um, and sorry, this one might also be for Jason. Uh, and, and maybe, Justin, you might, you might get this. I don't know. Um, Chicago Bears, anybody know Chicago Bears football in the 80s? What? William Perry, the refrigerator, right? He was named the refrigerator because he was 335 pounds. He's a big man, and everybody knew he was a big man, and they called him a big man. So this is Eglon. Eglon, the cow. He was a fat man. So they bring the food offering to the cow is the description here. Uh, he goes on in verses 18 and 19. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So after he presents the tribute, Ehud sends his carriers away. So again, Ehud is an escort. He's going with the tribute. There's enough tribute here that multiple people need to be used to carry this up to, uh, to Eglon to present it. Ehud is the security guard for this. Okay? Uh, verse 19 says, he turned back near Gilgal. Why is Gilgal important? Remember why Gilgal is important? Forgot, okay. What's that? Nope. Yep. It's important because it's important. Good, good, good. Um, Gilgal is the place. What's that? That's right. They put 12 stones up to commemorate their coming through the Jordan River. The Lord split the water of the Jordan. They came through the Jordan as a people and into the, into the land, and they set up 12 stones there to commemorate that God had brought them through the Jordan River. Um, it's also the place uh, where they renewed the covenant with Joshua, and it's also the place, uh, you might remember from Judges 2, when, the, when Judges are describing the sin of the people, the angel of the Lord came to Israel, he came to Gilgal, and from Gilgal he went to where the people were, okay? It's where the Lord's message is coming for the people, Gilgal. So, after they leave the presence of the king, Ahud goes past the idols at Gilgal, and at that moment he turns back. It's clear uh, to me, as I said earlier, that from the beginning of the story, Ahud was intent on doing something. He was ready to kill the king. Like, he's got a concealed weapon. He's formed a weapon for a specific purpose and concealed it on his thigh. He knows he's a right-handed man that's been disabled. He's using that uh, for advantage. But he doesn't do it when he first gets there, right? They leave. After the tribute is given, they, they leave. But at Gilgal... Ahud turns around. He dismisses the carriage of the tribute and turns around. Now listen, we can speculate about what the idols were that were at Gilgal. We don't know uh, actually whether he, when he got to Gilgal, he saw the 12 stones and was reminded of the time past. Or we don't know if it's like idols that the people of Moab had set up in place of these 12 stones. We don't have an accurate picture of exactly what he saw there when he turned around, but we know the place is significant. It's recorded in a significant way. And Ahud, when he gets there, knows he has to go back and finish what he came here to do. He wasn't coming to give tribute. He was coming to take the life of King Eglon, the king of Moab. So whatever it was, the significance, wasn't, the significance of the place was enough that he had to turn back and finish what he came to do. Um... I don't think it's far-fetched to say that at this point, the Lord put this plan into Ahud's mind, and he went back obediently to what the Lord told him to do. So he goes back, continuing in verse 19, and, it, and he says to Eglon, he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king says to all the people around, silence and all of his attendants leave the area. The king was intrigued, right? 
He apparently trusted Ehud enough that he would receive a message from him. He was apparently inquisitive enough that he's like, oh, a secret message. This sounds interesting. Please tell me, right? And he sends his people away. In verse 20, Ehud came to him as Eglon, he, was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose from his seat. So Eglon had gone and sat down. And the, your English translation likely says he went to a cool roof chamber. It's probably not that. Uh, it's probably an upper chamber. The word can be used both ways. So it's more likely that they went up to, a, to an upper chamber. Um, when you were in the desert like this, you didn't go up to get cool. You burrowed down to get cool. You get into the, into the ground to get coolness. Um, and so it's unlikely that this was a cool roof chamber with like air trying to flow through, but rather an upper chamber of the building where they're at. So Ehud says to him, I have a message from God for you. And I just can't like get the Blues Brothers out of my head saying I'm on a mission from God. Just, just it's in my head every time. It's not even the same words, but that's exactly what I, I'm on a mission from God. Um, so Eglon rose from his seat in honor of this message that has come from God. And here's where it gets juicy. Verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh, very emphatic about where everything is, right? Took his sword from his right thigh and thrust it into the belly of Eglon. Verse 22 says, And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out of his belly. Oh, man. Gross. This is the Bible. This is what the Bible records. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks be to God. Uh, Judges 3.23. Then Ahud went out onto the porch. It gets better, actually. And closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And the the... The wording here is a little funny because actually the word porch is an untranslatable word. We actually don't know, we actually don't know what this word means. Um, but you kind of have to think about what's happening, right? Uh, what happens after this is that when the servants came, verse 24, they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked and they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the chamber. So the servants outside the door think that Eglon is using the bathroom. So we know there's smell coming from the door that they're at. Wherever that door is, we know that there is smell coming from that door. They're like, he's just going potty, right? That's what's, that's what's happening. And so we're just going to wait. And they wait long enough to be embarrassed, okay? So he's in, a, he's in a room that is enclosed is the point, right? He's in a latrine, right? He's going to the bathroom is what they're thinking. So how did Ahud get out? He locked the door of the chamber. It's not like he's got a key to lock it from the outside, right? So he locks it from the inside. Where does Ahud escape? Down the sewer is the most likely opportunity. <laughs> so, so the word when Ahud went out the porch, we think is possibly when Ahud went down the sewer drain which would be like a big like, tower underneath where the toilet would sit and just like collect down. And it's like a really big porta potty, like a really big outdoor like campsite you know, restroom. It's like that, but like on a tower. It's fun. It's good times. Okay, so the servants come to the door, and they think he's just relieving himself, so they just wait. They wait so long that they're embarrassed, and they go get the keys and open the door, and there is Eglon dead on the floor. But while they delayed, Ahud escaped. And it says in the end of verse 26, and he passed beyond the idols. So he went past again, again to Gilgal and then out and escaped uh, to Sirah. Um, cool. So when he arrived... Uh, at Sirah, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And just so you have a picture of kind of the geography of what is here, could you go on the next slide there? Cool. 
So this is kind of what's happened. Moab is down here, okay, way down south of the Dead Sea. They've come up to, this is, their, this is where the capital is, Kir Haresh, Hareshath. Uh, and now Eglon is holding court in Jericho, in the land. Um, and you can, can't really tell too well, but basically for Ehud to leave, leave Jericho and go to Sarah, he would have to like go intentionally to the idols in the opposite direction of where he ends up, is kind of the point I wanted to make here. He goes east to the idols, or to Gilgal, instead of going straight west to where he's fleeing to, to gather up Israel and come back and fight. Um, but again, I, I think that's literally just him going back to the place where the Lord spoke to him and go like, that just happened. Like, what now? Right? Like, what do I do now? And he goes to Sirah and gathers uh, the people of Israel. He says to them, verse 28, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies... Sorry, let me say it again. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And I think that map is back again here, if you could go back. So the fords of the Jordan are here. Okay? So he goes west to Syrah to gather the... the armies of Ephraim, and then they go back past Jericho to the fords of the river. Why? Because they're going to cut off Moab from escaping back to their home country. Their king is gone. The only place they need to go is back home. And instead of going straight to attack them, they go straight to the fords and secure the fords of the Jordan and wait for them to battle. They did not allow anyone to pass back over to their home, but rather took them there. Verse 29, they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. Again, language is fuzzy. Um, something I just usually point out with Old Testament stuff is like, we're learning more about the Hebrew language in the most recent 50 years than we ever have known, like grammar-wise and language-wise. There's a lot that like we've just started learning more things about. So the Old Testament is not as far along in translation to English as the New Testament is based on our linguistic understanding. So there are a lot of question marks about things. This judges is fraught with them, okay? Um, he says, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. The word strong likely is fat or rich. Very different picture than <laughs> strong, able-bodied men, okay? There's two words there, strong and able-bodied men. The word strong is used only 10 other times in the Bible, and all nine of the other times it's used for the word either rich, as in luxurious, or fat. And so this shouldn't be surprising to us, that the king who is fat has subjects who are also fat. Right? And able-bodied literally just means they're ready for their soldiers. So they're fat soldiers, is my, my crude translation of this, is that they killed 10,000 fat soldiers of the Moabites. Verse 30, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Again, the significance of 80 being that there are two generations of rest here. Instead of 40, which, like there's four judges that record 40 years of rest for the land, Here's 80 years of rest. So the only one to record 80 years of rest is Ahud, 80 years of rest for the land. All right. How many, how many people knew that story was in the Bible? <laughs> that's, that's my favorite. <laughs> that's right. Awesome. Yeah. Man, there, there's some tremendous stuff. And so you're probably asking, what in the world do we do with uh, with this? <laughs> How do we walk away from this story and um, what would the Lord want to say to us? And I've got a few things that I think the Lord would challenge us with from this passage. The first is that it's important for us and it will be important for us throughout this time in Judges to allow our hearts to meditate on what it means to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Because every cycle of the judges starts with, and the people did evil in the sight 
of the Lord. And so we have to be asking the Lord this question. What is it to be doing evil in the sight of the Lord? If we're going to look at the history of Israel, if we're going to learn from what Israel walked through, we have to be discerning enough to look into our hearts and go, God, I want this whole heart to be surrendered to you. And so please remove any evil from my heart. I don't want to end up like Israel, serving evil. We have to ask the question, what is doing evil in the sight of the Lord? And I want to challenge us from this passage with that. If we aren't serving the Lord, which the Israelites weren't, then we are serving someone else. We're serving men. We're serving the spirit of man. We're serving the evil one. If we're not serving the Lord, we're serving evil. There's not a gradient here. It's a black and white issue. Okay? God doesn't comb in gray strokes. One or the other. You're either serving the Lord or you're not. In every issue that comes into your life, you're either giving that to the Lord or you're not giving that to the Lord. And our call in every scenario is to go with every circumstance and say, Lord, this is yours, and I give it to you, and it's out of my hands. The people were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. When we serve man, we are serving an entity that desires power and authority, but which is tremendously limited in its capacity. Okay? So when we choose not to serve the Lord, we're serving man. Okay? It's our choice. We're going to serve something else or someone else. And that something else or someone else in, of a, in, a, in and of itself desires power and authority for itself. Okay? If you pick a party in America and start serving that party and give your allegiance to a party, like a political party, guess what the political party wants from you? Your money, your time, your power. It wants you to contribute that to its cause as much as you possibly can. Okay? It, if you're going to cheer for a sports team, guess what that sports team wants from you? They want your donation to, your, to their new NIL program. Okay? They want you to support their rising athletes. Okay? They want you to spend your every day thinking about and celebrating their victories and their power and authority. They, they want and desire power and authority from you. If you serve man, man is wanting more power and authority. But that man is limited, tremendously limited, okay? Um, so we went to a football game last night. So you could call it that. Um, for us, we lost terribly, okay? Our team lost terribly. It was horrible. It was terrible, okay? But it's so amazing to look at, you know, just that, like, microcosm of life, right? And go, we, we went to a stadium and stood with 50,000 people cheering for a football team, right? And listen, it was fun. It was a great time. We enjoyed it. We got rained on. We were drenched. It was a good family time. The game was terrible. Our team lost. But we had a good time. And people, man, I am so thankful that my life is not about that only. I really am. I enjoyed it. It was fun to participate in. I mean, the stadium is fun. They call it the bounce house at UCF, okay, because it's literally like a high school bleacher, and everybody jumps around, and it really feels like you are bouncing, and it's great. It was, if I were them, I would have been doing the same thing. That would have been so fun for that, but we were not on the right side of that at all. But man, the truth is that so many of us in life have all of our life wrapped up in something so small compared to what God has for us. That's so tremendously limited in capacity, and yet we give our full allegiance to it. So in spite of how it can feel in the moment, there is no power that can stand before the power of our God. Okay, and when we're doing evil in the sight of the Lord, what we're saying is that, Lord, you don't have power. This has more power than you. We're choosing this power over your power. 
Yeah, there's no mixing of powers here. There is one power, and it is God Almighty. You can't like synthesize it with others and make some sort of like amalgamation God out of it. Okay? This is God, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is one. And no power can stand before him. And so in spite of how it may feel in the moment of what we're going through, we have to know this, that our God is in charge. The Moabites and the Ammonites were not an impressive lot, okay? Um, again, from a human standpoint, Israel was not outmatched in strength. Like, just if you compared the armies, Israel's army was better than Moab's army. Like, just put the stats on the, on the sheet and go like, wow, they, they either match up or, or Israel's stronger. The thing is, it, Israel's problem was not about the physical. Israel's problem was spiritual. Israel was defeated by Moab because for 18 years, it didn't cry out to the Lord. It didn't even cry out to the Lord for 18 years. And then, when they finally did cry out to the Lord, did the Lord raise up? a man of strength with two strong arms and, and big prominence and threatening figure? No. He rose up Ehud, the one who was disabled in his right arm, had to hide a sheath in his thigh. The Lord is the one who does these things, not the power of man. And so, as we look at this passage, we, we don't need to be analyzing and go, man, if I just had this gifting, or if I just had this strength, or if I just get this thing under control, or if this thing falls in this way, stop trying to manipulate the circumstances of your life and start submitting to the authority of the Lord Jesus in your life. So first, let's look at our hearts and ask, God, are we doing something evil in the sight of the Lord? Search us and know us. Second, are we being led in our calling by our weakness? Or are we being led in our calling by the Lord through our weakness? Are we being led in our calling by our weakness? Or are we being led in our calling by the Lord through our weakness? Two very different statements. If you're being led by your weakness, then there's no step you're going to be able to take. You're always going to look at your weakness and go, I can't do it because of my weakness. My weakness is too big for me to do this calling. I need to wait till this weakness is removed, and then I will be able to step in the calling that the Lord has for me. But as long as this weakness is here, I cannot do it. I praise God that Joni Erickson Tata did not say that to herself and does not say that to herself. I praise God that Ahud did not say that to himself. Right? He said, well, until the Lord heals my right arm, which he could do, until the Lord heals my right arm, I can't be the one that he calls. Are we being led by our weakness and not doing what God has called us to do as a result? Or are we being led by the Lord, and in spite of our weaknesses, going forth with faith that God is going to fight our battles? It is a testimony that this, our weakness is a testimony that all success in the kingdom is by the Lord's strength and not ours. It is the Lord who raised up Ahud. Ahud was willing to be used in spite of his weakness for the glory of of the Lord. He was so confident that despite how things seemed, the Lord had given Moab back into the hand of Israel. Like it's one thing to go and perform the assassination, right? He went, he assassinates the king. Then he goes back to the army of Israel and says, this people that we've been in servitude for 18 years, God has given them into our hand. The Lord has given them into man. Follow me 
not because I'm strong, but follow me because the Lord has given them to us. It's finished. They're done. They've got 10,000 army men here, and we are going to defeat them because the Lord has given them to us. It's completed. God delights in using us in spite of our weaknesses. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And again in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Lord knows what our weaknesses are. I don't know if you know that, but like, God knows your weakness. He knows where you're weak. I mean, you know it too. You're looking at yourself going, this is my weakness, and I can't do this because my weakness is If the Lord told you to do something, he's not unaware of your weakness. What he's after is your obedience. The Lord works through our weaknesses for his glory, because this whole thing is supposed to point to the Lord's strength and not our own. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The strong finds their pride and power in their own strength and puff themselves up in what they have done for themselves and pat themselves on the back for what they have accomplished. And God says, that's not it. This is about me. I am the one who formed the foundations of the earth. I am the one that put the stars in the sky. I am the one. And so all things will pass through my hands. The Lord knows our weaknesses, and if he calls you to do something, he's aware that your weakness is there. So don't let your weakness stop you from being obedient to what God has called you to step into. And finally, um, Coming back to our hearts on this, I have to point out one thing about weakness. It's really important to say, and it kind of circles back to being sure we're not doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, but we should be certain to understand that our weakness is not the same thing as our sin. Our weakness is not the same thing as our sin. Um, a lot of people cast a lot of shade on the judges, the deliverers of this book, and say, oh, God uses these sinful people to do his work. And even some have gone as far to say, well, see, Ahud is an idol worshiper. He went to the idols at Gilgal, and he worshiped the idols, and then went and did this treacherous act against Eglon, and then went back and worshipped the idols. That's all fine and good if you take that interpretation and like want to argue that, except that the Lord's word says that the Lord raised up Ahud. And the Lord's word says that when Ahud went to gather the armies of Israel, he said that the Lord has given Moab into his hand. So if you want to cast Ahud as an idol worshiper, I don't think you can do that based on the text. Because Ahud was right. He was in sync with the Lord. He knew what the Lord had done at Gilgal. And it convicted him to his heart, and he said, this is not our people. We have, I have to do what God told me to do, and I'm going to go do it. Our weakness is not equal to our sin. I, I trust each of you who have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior have the Holy Spirit. And so I beg you, if that is the case, then listen to Holy Spirit. Say, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as your only Lord and your only Savior, then you know, maybe Holy Spirit's not on you. But if you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then Holy Spirit is resident inside of you. And he tells you what is right and what is wrong. And what he tells you is in perfect unity with God's revealed word. Okay? What God has said by his Holy Spirit through Scripture is going to equate what Holy Spirit tells you in your heart. 
And so it can be tempting to look at stories like this and see God uses sinful people. Does God use sinful people? Sure. Sure. He does. Yep. He can use us in spite of ourselves. That's, that's true. But I want to challenge you, Christian. God does not advance his kingdom. God does advance his kingdom through our weakness. But God does not advance his kingdom through our sin. We can actually fool ourselves into thinking that our battle with sin doesn't matter because God has given us enough grace that if he wants to use us for his glory, that he'll use us in spite of our sin. But if you want to fight in the kingdom of God, you, we have to start with letting the Lord search our hearts and purify our motivations. And only then will he give us eyes to see how great a work he desires to do through us. And God is way bigger than me, and his ways are way higher than mine. And I know that the Lord has worked through men who are sinful, like undercurrent of them. He works in spite of them, and I know that's a thing. But for the man who is sinful, leading some big organization and God working under it, like, let's simplify it a little bit. For that man, he's in a dangerous spot, and you are in a dangerous spot. If God is using you in spite of your sin, you are in a dangerous place. Okay, Eglon, king of Moab, was used by God in spite of being a sinful man. He was in a dangerous spot. And so do not fool yourself into thinking that God will use me in spite of my sin because God just uses whatever he wants to use. Please, Christian, let Holy Spirit convict your heart and, and lead you in the way everlasting that he wants to work through you and he wants your motives to be pure and his greatest uh, effort and desire for you is that you walk in holiness with him that his kingdom might advance. And guess what? He will do that in spite of your weaknesses. Praise God that his glory would reign. But please don't skip. Please don't skip out on seeking the purity the Holy Spirit brings unto your life. Let him convict your heart. Let him challenge you on your sin. Let him take your whole heart, your whole life, that you would not serve evil as the Israelites did, but would rather serve the Lord Almighty, who would know that that is the Lord who gave the victory, not Ahud, not the people in their greatness. The Lord gave Moab into their hands. And so my prayer for us is this, that though we are weak, we're weak, guys, I mean, we're weak. <laughs> we don't have enough. We're lacking, okay? We don't have enough supply. We, we don't have surpluses in our bank accounts, okay? We don't have ample amounts of room. We have a very unqualified teacher and preacher here, okay? We don't have it all together here. We don't. And I'll relish in that. Okay, Because as long as God calls us to be who God has called us to be, we don't have to worry about what the results are or what the metrics are or what the things are. We just have to worry about being obedient to what God has called us to do and to pursue that obedience in complete holiness to what his scripture has revealed. And in that way, we can be Ahab. And we can fight for the kingdom of God in the way God desires us to do so. And so regardless of what comes, I pray that we would be a people that goes to the Lord in prayer and asks him to purify our hearts, that his kingdom will go forth. Whether we see what happens or whether we don't, that we will be obedient to what God is doing in and through us in spite of how weak we are. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you I thank you that in spite of my weakness, in spite of our weakness, you are strong. I thank you that you confound the prideful and the strong by exalting that which is weak. And God, we don't, we don't exalt in that in some sort of formula thinking, oh man, well, if I just uh, am happy with being weak, then the Lord's going to bless me. No. 
we surrender our hearts, God. We, we proclaim that we are not enough to do what you have called us to do. Only you are enough to do what you have called us to do. So Lord, I pray we would have the heart of Ehud that would see and hear from Holy Spirit about what it is we are to do and what you call us to. And that we'll be obedient to that. Lord, I pray that in spite of our weakness, you would use us for the glory of your kingdom. That King Jesus would be put on the throne, not any other name. And so God, I pray for each of these here. Um, I pray first that they would know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Cast off all other idols and submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. At whose knee every, at who every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And Lord, I pray for us as believers, each one in this room, we're all facing all sorts of things in our life. And we just want to recognize right now that you are aware. You are perfectly aware of every situation that's happening inside this room. It's not a big room, and even if it were a huge room, even if it were 50,000 people in a stadium, you would know every situation, and you do know every situation. But we here want to testify and say that you know our scenario. You know our circumstances. And today we declare they're yours. They're not ours. So we ask you, God, to move in our circumstances, to move in our situations. All of our burdens we lay down before you because we cannot carry them any longer. They're not ours to carry, God. We are too weak to bear the load. We need you, Lord Jesus, to fight these battles on our behalf. We're disabled in our strong arm, Lord. And so be our strength. Lord, we pray that you would examine our hearts and know us. Know if there's any unpure way in, it, in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We do not want to serve any other God. We do not want to serve any other idol. We do not want to serve man in his ways. We want to serve the Lord. The Lord who tore down the walls of Jericho with trumpet blast. The Lord who carried the people of Israel through the waters of the Jordan on dry land. We want to serve that Lord who gave us the promise of his presence and secured it with the blood of his son. Lord, may live this week boldly with that truth in mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.